Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Hello and welcome to part one of the Blackstone Chambers Retained EU Law Conference Series. I'm Kieran Beale KC and I'm delighted to welcome you to an array of panellists from Blackstone Chambers. In this episode, we will explain the general provisions of the Retained EU Law Act, featuring James Segan KC, Gayatri Sarathi and Tom Delamere KC. I'm going to start off with James Segan dialing in from goodness knows where via the internet to enlighten us on the overall structure of the new act. James is a committee member of the Bar European Group. He's a regular attendee of conferences. He's written for books such as the Modern Law of Copyright. He writes regularly, features in many of the leading cases in the EU and copyright field, including Huawei and so on, an all-round good egg. A fun fact about James is that if there were to be an ideal FA Cup final once again, it would feature Coventry against Spurs as it did in 1987. I hope James can join us now remotely. Thank you, Now, my role is to introduce the first five sections of the rule act which contain some of the key operative provisions. But before we get to the detail of those sections, there are really two key questions. First of all, how did we get here? Secondly, what is the rule act trying to achieve? Now to answer the first of those questions, how did we get here, we go to my uh, first substantive slide which is getting Brexit done. Because the starting point in any analysis of the Rule Act is, of course, that the Rule Act 2023 is the culmination of a five-year legislative programme designed to give effect to Brexit in UK law. And I've summarised on the slide the various steps in that programme. First of all, we had the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018, EUA, as I expect most people are going to call it. That, of course, created the concept of retained EU law and specified how it would operate. That is really the key act with which the Rule Act 2023 is interacting. But it's important to note that we do have all of these further uh, legislative So, first of all, the UWAGA 2020, the Withdrawal Agreement Act, which not only provided for an implementation period, but also gave direct effect to the withdrawal agreement in UK law. That, of course, is very important, not just from the perspective of citizens' rights, but also, of course, in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And indeed, Article 127 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which I've mentioned in the slide, provided that uh, the law which was retained for the implementation period until the end of 2020 was intended to produce the same legal effect as those which it produces within the Union and the Member States. Now, that is one of the points which was not considered by the Competition Appeal Tribunal in its important recent Volvo's decision, which I know Nana is going to be covering in her uh, presentation. But in, in short, in that decision, the CAP decided that all accrued causes of action prior to Brexit under the European Community Act 1972 were kind of converted into retained EU law causes of action. So that, for instance, if you have a set of facts in 2015, 
that cause of action was converted into a retained EU law cause of action upon Brexit. Now, if the CAT view is correct in that regard, it is hard, uh, I would suggest, to see how Article 127 of the Withdrawal Agreement could have been complied with in credit to Tom de la Mare, who's speaking a short while for, um, for that particular point, that that issue is relevant to anyone with a claim with facts occurring before 31st of December 2020. Now, we then had thousands of EU exit statutory instruments across a vast range of sectors. We had the replacement acts of parliament in subsidy control, procurement, immigration, and the such like. And of course, we then have the European Union Future Relationship Act 2020, which gives direct effect to the enormous two and a half thousand page trade and cooperation agreement in EU law. So we already have this incredibly complicated three-dimensional jigsaw of law to replace what was previously EU law. During the Miller litigation, uh, people often referred to the European Communities Act 1972 as a conduit. Well, uh, on any view, that conduit pipe has now been replaced with a far more complicated and elaborate sprinkler system of sources of law. And that is all before Sir Jacob Rees-Bogg got hold of the legislative program, which brings me to the next slide, which is what the Rule Act was intended to achieve. Now, we know it began life as the Brexit Freedoms Bill. And the original idea was simple. It was that the hope of retained EU law would simply go at the end of this year, uh, enabling Britain to break free from the stranglehold of EU law. And I've put some uh, statements from Bayes in, uh, on the slide, and we can see what the initial aim was. Now, that comprised, if that had happened, that comprised, depending on which estimate you went with, something like about 5,000 different laws. Uh, and when Bayes put together its list of Brexit opportunities that would come from all of this, we can see the top two were to encourage fracking, and number two was more powerful vacuum cleaners. But it, it, became, it quickly became clear that repealing the entirety of retained EU law would cause utter chaos. Uh, and to take IP as an example, the UK IPO identified, I think, 80 pieces of IP-related legislation that were just simply gone. The same happened across sectors. And so what was enacted was very different, which brings me to the next slide. Section one, and we could easily call this the sun that never set because what happened instead of the initial proposal was that a sort of laundry list of 600 specific pieces of subordinate legislation and retained EU regulations was gathered together a specific and targeted repeat. Some of those pieces of legislation are indeed quite significant. I think Kieran is going to cover some in relation to tax, for example, but equally, when one looks through the schedule, there is a sense that there is really quite a lot of filler in there. Uh, the first item, uh, which I've mentioned on the slide, indeed, is the repeal of an order granting certain tax privileges to a plasma physics experiment in Oxfordshire, which seems unlikely to be 
what Brexit freedoms were intended to be all about. But what is more importantly, it has already become clear that even that list of 600 instruments was uh, too extensive, and the government has just published a draft statutory instrument under the power I mentioned in the slide, section 1.4, preserving eight of those 600 odd from repeal because it had been realized that they shouldn't really be uh, repealed. So uh, in a sense, this section is no longer where the real action is with the Rule Act. The real action comes in section two to four, to which I now uh, turn. Section two is a very important section. It's really where one sees that the Act has become somewhat unbalanced as a result of the different provision that was made in relation to section one. So section one is now a limited repeal of specific regulations, whereas section two gets rid of all rights which were transferred into retained EU law by the so-called sweeper provision in section four of EUA. Uh, and what that means is that uh, all directly effective rights under directives and treaties and the such like, all of the rights which came into UK law via section 2.2 of the European Communities Act 1972 in the first place, will go with effect from the 1st of January 2024, but that applies only to things occurring after 1st of January 2024, and I made the point in the slide that that is section 22.5, potentially another important section for the Volvo issue that NANA is going to be dealing with, but on any view, a very important section, as I think Holly's going to be addressing for a while, it looked like the government, uh, and indeed Parliament, had abolished the treaty right to equal pay, but the government has had to uh, reverse on that. That's section two. Section three dovetails with section two. This is the abolition of the supremacy of EU law. And in many ways, it's, the, it's one of the most interesting provisions in the statute, because as we know, EU 2018 preserved the supremacy of EU law. So if you had a piece of pre-existing domestic legislation and a piece of retained EU law, the piece of retained EU law, if it would have taken precedence before Brexit, continued to take precedence afterwards. That is being reversed on the 1st of January 2024. Uh, not only is supremacy being removed, but as we can see from the amended Section 5 that I've put on the statute, the rule is reversed so that assimilated direct legislation becomes subject to all domestic enactments so far as it's incompatible with them. And we also have in section 5A2A a kind of reverse Marleithing rule under which retained EU law now has to be interpreted and given effect in a way compatible with domestic enactments. And that means all domestic enactments whenever made. So what this means, of course, is that the indirect effect of directive goes, so there's no more uh, suggestion of any kind of marleasing approach. The courts have recently floated the possibility in the e-accounting case that I mentioned at the end of the slide, that the common law can fill the gap uh, by way of the ordinary purposive interpretation approach. That, I know, is something that Emily is going to be talking about in the context of telecoms, so I shan't tread on her toes on that particular issue. But this inversion of the traditional approach to supremacy will give rise to some very interesting issues 
uh, in practice. Indeed, you could have a case where the facts ban the 1st of January 2024. Uh, and at midnight on the 31st of December 2023, uh, a law that would have taken precedence over a domestic law will suddenly uh, have to give way to the same domestic law. So it would be very uh, interesting to see how that works out in practice. That's section three. We then have section four, which gets rid of the general principles of EU law. Now, as we know, under Euro 2018, those general principles had a very limited role anyway, uh, essentially as an interpretative aid. But the Rule Act makes clear that they are going as well from the 1st of January 2024 and no longer have any role at all. And finally, at least as regards my contribution, we have been told uh, by Parliament that we are not allowed to call retained EU law retained EU law anymore. Uh, Section 5 says that we now have to know it as assimilated law, assimilated case law, etc. set at the table in the slide. Now, quite what uh, sanction applies in the case of a breach, I don't know, but we have to get used to calling it assimilated EU law. But what, what we get uh, so far from those five sections, I would suggest, is a sense of a rather unbalanced act because of what happened to Section 1. The idea was to get rid of the whole of retained EU law. That proved to be impossible as regards the 5,000 or so laws. So that was watered down to 600 specific instruments. But the rest of the act remains a much more thoroughgoing elimination of retained EU law. Uh, and so those are some really significant changes in sections two to four, especially, which I know are going to flow through into a lot of the sector-specific presentations that you'll be hearing in due course. But at that point, I think I hand over to Gayatri, who's going to be dealing with section six and the very important provisions on the role of the courts. Thank you very much, James. Gayatri Sarathi is a very experienced practitioner in EU and competition law. She's also acted, for example, in the Fratilla case in the Supreme Court, which dealt with, uh, amongst other things, the impact of retained EU law, and she'll come on to deal with that, no doubt. Before coming to the bar, she taught at Oxford University. Fun fact about Gayatri is that she lived in seven different countries growing up, and we can ask her over coffee which was her favourite. <laughs> Um, thank you, Kieran. Uh, I'm speaking about sections 6 to 8, which appear under the heading Interpretation and Effect of Retained EU Law. Um, starting then with section 6, uh, section 6 amends EUA in broadly speaking three ways. Uh, first, it provides for a new test for departing from retained EU case law and retained domestic case law. Second, it introduces a new reference procedure to enable a lower court to refer a point of law concerning retained case law to a higher court. And third, it confers new powers on the Attorney General and other law officers to make a reference or to intervene. Um, turning first to departing from retained case law, um, there are there are two types of retained case law, retained EU case law, i.e. CJEU decisions, uh, and retained domestic case law, so decisions of domestic courts relating to retained EU law. Um, which courts may depart from the case law? 
The issue obviously doesn't arise in relation to retained domestic case law since the ordinary rules of precedent apply. Um, in relation to retained EU case law, the Act codifies what was partly in EUA and partly in an SI brought in pursuant to EUA. So the Supreme Court, um, the High Court of Justiciary and relevant appeal courts, which is defined as including, amongst others, the Court of Appeal, um, are now not bound by retained EU case law. Um, another change is in relation to the text. <coughs> Uh, previously, Section 6.5 of EUA provided that the court should apply the same test that it would apply when deciding whether to depart from its own case law. Um, so that test is whether it's right to do so. Now, Section 6.5 of EUA sets out a non-exhaustive list of three factors that the court must have regard to. Uh, and they're, they're on the screen. So namely, the fact that decisions of a foreign court are not usually binding. Um, any changes of circumstance which are relevant to the retained EU case law, and the extent to which the retained EU case law restricts the proper development of domestic law. Um, the explanatory note suggests that this uh, reflects the factors that the Court of Appeal considered in the case of Tunin, uh, but Section 6.5 is obviously selective in some of the factors that were reproduced. Um, a similar test applies when a higher court is considering whether to repart, depart from retained domestic case law, uh, the one difference being that the first factor requires the court to consider the extent to which retained domestic case law is determined or influenced by retained EU case law from which the court has departed or would depart. Um, you are, on this issue was previously silent, uh, again based on the ordinary doctrine of precedent. What is clear, however, is that Parliament is signalling the importance of considering factors that favour departing from retained case law by making them, in effect, mandatory relevant considerations. That said, it remains for the courts to determine which other factors to consider and the overall approach. So the courts may, for example, continue to follow retained case law for reasons of legal certainty, um, a factor that weighed very heavily in the Court of Appeals analysis in uh, tune in not to depart from retained case law. Um, turning now to the second uh, innovation in Section 6, uh, references on retained case law by lower courts. Section 6.8 establishes a new reference procedure enabling a lower court or tribunal, uh, which is bound by retained case law, <coughs> to refer a point, to a, a point of law to a higher court, which is not so bound to decide. Um, a court or tribunal may only make a reference if three conditions are satisfied. Um, the referred point of law is relevant to the proceedings, the lower court or tribunal is bound by the retained case law, uh, and they consider the points of law are of general public importance. Um, now, the reason for the frog on, frog on the slide is not just because I've worked out how to do it. Um, <laughs> it's for, <laughs> and canvassed it amongst my fellow panellists. Um, it's for two other reasons. Uh, first, the test of general public importance is modelled, it seems, uh, on the test in Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act um, in relation to le leapfrog appeals from the High Court to the Supreme Court. Um, and second, because Section 6A3 has the effect of a leapfrog appeal. Uh, what it aims to do is to ensure that the court which receives the reference is the right court to be able to depart from the retained case law. 
So where it concerns case law of the Supreme Court, the reference must be made to that court. Uh, otherwise, it must be made to the appropriate appeal court, which is defined later to make clear that that might not be the direct appellate court. Um, so, for example, even though an appeal from the employment tribunal would ordinarily go to the EAT, a reference from the tribunal must be made to the Court of Appeal, because that court is listed as the appropriate appeal court and the EAT is not. Um, the receiving court has a discretion on whether to accept the reference if it meets the criteria. And if it does, uh, any decision by that court must be applied by the lower court. Um, there is also a further route for a higher court to give a ruling on retained case law, references by law officers, including the Attorney General. Um, but that operates quite differently in some key respects. First, a reference is only allowed where the underlying proceedings have concluded. Um, second, any such reference must be made within six months of the proceedings having been concluded. Uh, third, any validly made reference must be decided by the higher court rather than um, giving the high court any form of discretion. Um, and fourth, the ruling has no effect on the outcome of concluded proceedings. Um, that is obviously sensible, but it's difficult, I think, as a litigator to see how it would operate in practice. So, for example, take an employment dispute about sex discrimination, uh, an area in which there is a significant body of retained case law. Um, the dispute is concluded without a reference by either the employer or the employee. Um, the AG comes along to refer the proceedings to the Court of Appeal. It seems likely that the employer and employee would be entitled to participate in the appeal, but why would they uh, and incur the costs of doing that if they no longer have any skin in the game? Uh, would it then be the AG alone who makes submissions before the Court of Appeal? And by reference to what facts? Um, presumably it would be the facts in the underlying proceedings, but uh, they would not be proceedings in which the AG has previously been involved. Um, it remains to be seen whether this power will get much use at all. It was formulated while the AG was Suella Braverman, um, and you know, her stance on the effect of foreign decisions on domestic courts is well known. Um, but now, with Victoria Prentice as the AG, it might be that the power is used less, if at all. Um, Section 6C also confers on law officers a right to intervene in proceedings before a higher court. Before I leave Section 6, it's important to note that it's not yet in force, and it will only enter into in force by commencement regulations. Um, without changes to the rules of procedures of courts and tribunals to give effect to those changes, it's difficult to see how it could be brought into force. So it might be some time before these new procedures see light of day. Um, turning now to the next section, Section 7. Uh, Section 7 confers a power to make regulations to restore the priority given to any provision of retained direct EU legislation over any dom domestic enactment, notwithstanding repeal of supremacy, as um, James has previously discussed. So it is, in effect, a power to return to business as usual in relation to direct EU legislation. Um, when the power is exercised, that provision is given priority both for the purpose of marleasing consistent interpretation and to prevail over any domestic enactment to the extent of the inconsistency. Now, this provision is in force, uh, but as far as I'm aware, no secondary legislation has yet been made under it. Um, in order to ensure continuity, one would expect 
expect the government to be make, making regulations under Section 7 soon, so that they may come into force at the end of 2023. Um, finally, Section 8, uh, incompatibility orders. Um, Section 8 inserts a new Section 6D into EUA, which empowers domestic courts to issue an incompatibility order where retained direct EU, uh, EU legislation and any domestic enactment are incompatible and that incompatibility cannot be resolved by interpretation. Um, a court in those circumstances is required to make an incompatibility order. Um, this remedy appears to be the reverse of the jurisdiction of the courts, which existed prior to the repeal of the ECA, to declare that primary legislation is incompatible with EU law, known as a sort of EOC-type declaration. Um, however, the courts have some discretion in relation to the effects of the order. Um, so the court has the power to delay it coming into force, uh, remove or limit its retrospective effects, or make it subject to conditions. Um, this power appears to be based in part on the further provisions made in relation to quashing orders and judicial review proceedings under Section 29A of the Senior Courts Act which gives the power to suspend or give prospective only quashing orders or alter their effect. Um, as a consequence of the repeal of the supremacy principle, any domestic enactment, um, which is defined in Europe incredibly broadly as including, for example, even a bylaw, um, is given primacy over retained EU direct legislation. Um, that problem, which may, in certain circumstances, produce surprising or absurd results, is then handed over to the courts. Um, but even if they delay the order coming into force or limit its retrospective effects, that domestic enactment trumps, uh, unless and until regulations under Section 7, which I've previously discussed, or uh, restatement, <coughs> etc., under Sections 12 and 13. Um, I will now hand you over to Tom to take you through those powers. Uh, Tom Delamere KC needs little introduction. I first met him in 1995 when he was flown over as special guest of Professor Joseph Weiler to teach us in America how EU law was done. Since then, he's been in pretty much every significant EU law case in this jurisdiction, including Lumsden, where his submissions with his team helped the Supreme Court sort out a right mess that the Court of Appeal and Court of Session had respectively got into about the impact of EU law. He's appeared in almost all of the leading cases on the withdrawal agreement, and he tells me he's a member of the CAT Users Group, so um, he deserves our sympathy. Um, over to Tom. Uh, thanks for that introduction, Kieran. Um, well, I've come to talk to you about the subject I know you're all really here for, which is delegated legislation. And uh, my theme is uh, Henry VIII, because um, these provisions, I think, continue a theme of extremely substantial and, I think, constitutionally troubling transfer of extremely wide power to the executive. Um, maybe for six wives we can substitute six children, given that the spiritual father of this legislation is none other than Jacob Rees-Mogg. And of course, those of you who are fans of Carry On Henry, which I suspect no one would confess to these days, would remember the strap line, a great guy with his chopper. So um, this really is the latest in a long line of Henry VIII's powers of ever-expanding width starting, of course, with the European Communities Act. Then we have the provisions in Section 8, Schedule 8 of the Withdrawal Act, um, at least 
meant to correct anomalies, etc., from withdrawal. The fairly wide Henry VIII powers in the withdrawal agreement to give effect to its contents. Euphra, even wider still. And then lastly, these provisions, we're going to be looking at sections 9 to 16 and schedules 4 to 5. And as I put at the strap line at the bottom, the real constitutional peril here is the vast area of policy now opened to pretty much unaccountable essay-making powers, even if no Act of Parliament is modified. Now, there are two uh, key bits of background reading to this topic, and indeed, I think in lots of ways to the Act in general. The first is the excellent House of Commons Library report produced by Graham Cowie. There's a reference for it there. And the second is the Delegated Powers Memorandum um, produced as part of the regular scrutiny of delegated powers of this kind that really explains what the intention is behind the powers in question. And here are the main themes. Uh, the first, sections 9 to 10, well, it's all about rebooting or supercharging existing powers to make delegated legislation and removal of all the enhanced scrutiny that had previously um, been thought appropriate by the European Union um, uh, Withdrawal Act. Uh, secondly, we've got the twin powers in uh, section 11 and 12 to restate retained EU law or restate uh, that when it becomes assimilated law, along with the power to reproduce sunsetted retained EU law. Then we have some procedural limitations in section 13. And then perhaps most concerningly of all, uh, section 14, the extraordinarily wide powers of revocation and replacement. And then some seemingly innocuous, but perhaps not quite so innocuous, uh, powers to update by reference to scientific developments um, in section 15 and 16. So let's look at section nine very quickly, first of all. The um, original scheme of the European Union Withdrawal Act was effectively that direct principle REUL, i.e. council regulations, were treated as acts of parliament and so they could only be amended by primary legislation or by extant Henry VIII powers. And that reflected a hierarchy in which regulations were akin to domestic primary legislation and generally as policy laden and as significant as acts of parliament in lots of areas, think medicines, fisheries, foods, etc. And that drove pretty much all the amendments that were made to regulations into Section 8 of UWA because it was a Henry VIII clause and it was designed for curing anomalies, albeit designed to produce continuity of policy. But what Section 9 does is effectively um, confer the power to amend direct primary e EU legislation regulations upon any other power. That's the effect of Section 9 and Schedule 3. It means that regulations are downgraded to become the lowest form of secondary legislation, as Gigi's already explained, and they can be amended by any SA-making power. Whatever its structure, whatever its scrutiny process, however informal the process for adopting the relevant instruments in question. And what this is, is in effect a vast and unaudited expansion of SA-making powers into areas where perhaps the relevant uh, SI-making power was never designed to uh, make policy in the way that it is now effectively enabled to do. Um, extremely troubling, and we'll have to see how that one pans out. It's particularly troubling when you read it with Section 10, because um, in the course of the debate of the European Withdrawal Agreement, 
um, the government was forced to accept that a lot of the powers it was asking for and a lot of the upheaval was extremely concerning. And it was forced to concede to uh, impose various scrutiny safeguards, explanatory statements, enhanced scrutiny procedures in which quite by way of exception to regular parliamentary practice, some SIs were pulled out and subjected to really quite searching analysis and a, a consistent and principled use of affirmative as opposed to negative procedures for SIs. All of that has been abolished. Um, uh, and um, uh, on the basis that the, the safeguards in question have, and this is the wording of the Delegated Powers Memorandum, produced no tangible benefit. I think a highly contestable statement if you speak to people who specialize in the study of SIs, uh, lots of uh, tangible benefits were identified. Um, but what this means is effectively those safeguards that have been principally focused on UR, but also applied to other statutory instrument making powers used to the same effect are all gone. And that's part of the free for all effectively for supercharging delegated legislation to change uh, EU law. There are um, uh, various uh, combined effects of this, and the most obvious is the potential to be blindsided by changes to REUL by seemingly innocuous uh, statutory instruments made pursuant to other statutory instrument powers. And, and what's more, the supercharging of sections 9 to 10 allow the circumvention of the specific powers conferred in section 11 to 16, because if you have a generously formulated extant power rebooted by section 9, you may not need to use the powers of restatement or revocation at all. Uh, then there's a, a very uh, difficult question, which really none of the cases have grappled with so far. What happens when your REUL is modified by some provision outside the five acts? So as we'll see in a second, sections 11 to 16 all state whether or not the end product of their use is or is not assimilated law. But if, for instance, you're changing something with the Weights and Measures Act, and uh, an SI making power in relation to that, and what you're doing is modifying extant retained EU law, is the hybrid product still retained EU law and therefore subject to section six and all the rules about supremacy, et cetera, or is it not? And that's a question that is posed and has always been posed by section 6.3 of the European Union withdrawal agreement. And it effectively leaves the decision to the courts. Now, <clears throat> It's not been a significant decision to date because for the reasons I've just explained, most regulations, et cetera, haven't been amended by other um, uh, statutory instrument making powers. The amendments have all been through section eight of EUA and therefore everything has remained retained EU law. But this question is very much central once section eight, which is closed because it ceased to be available on the 1st of January, is replaced by potential changes through these mechanisms. And so my prediction is that this is going to become a very major battleground, and it's an extremely uncertain provision. It's only even been cited in one case, the e-accounting case, uh, and no one has considered how to actually decide uh, the key question of intention and consistency that it poses. Then we have section 11. <coughs> this is the restatement of retained EU law. Uh, it appears at first sight only to be directed at uh, secondary legislation and so not a Henry VIII power. That's not true because it can be used to amend uh, primary legislation itself 
used, made through of Henry VIII's power. So if there's a Henry VIII power that's been exercised through statutory instruments, those statutory instruments, and by extension, the primary legislation in question can be changed using, using this particular power. It runs until the 31st of December, which is when retained EU law becomes assimilated law. Anything restated ceases to be retained EU law and so does not become assimilated law. And that means effectively you are pulled out of the corpus of rules provided by the five acts I've shown you. It becomes effectively regular domestic law. And there is a problem in relation to that, which is that once it's pulled out of assimilated law and made into domestic law, the measure in question becomes potentially incapable of change unless there is another SI making power in relation to it, which in some areas uh, there may well not be because the domestic decision-making framework wasn't built up because of our European uh, Union arrangements. There have been a number of, um, uh, sorry, excuse me on ahead, there have been a number of uh, draft regulations that I think Holly's going to speak to you, but I've come across just four so far, uh, mainly in the fields of occupational pensions. I think it's reasonable to expect there's going to be a flurry of regulations under this power to codify uh, the Section 4 retained EU law before the 31st of December, because otherwise bad things might happen. And as you can see, the, the section specifically provides that supremacy, general principles, and EU precedent don't follow over into the uh, codified or restated law unless they're expressly ported over. Section uh, 12 is much the same provision uh, but for uh, assimilated EU law, and it effectively extends the Section 11 power after the 31st of December. And again, it provides that a restatement is not assimilated law. And there is expressed disapplication only of the rules of precedent. Why? Because supremacy and the general principles have by the 31st of December already been abolished. But there is, like Section 11, a power to restate uh, those principles, uh, if applicable. And there is a long stop date for the exercise of this power of the 23rd of June, three, three, 2026, three years after uh, the passage of the Act. Then we have the slightly peculiar reproduction of sunsetted retained EU law power tacked on to the end of Section 12. And this effectively, I think, um, just like Section 11, allows a restatement after it has gone after it has been repealed of the Section 4 case law. And I think this is to do two things. Uh, I think, first of all, it's to um, provide a matching power. But secondly, I think it's to deal with cock-up. Because where you discover that you needed a directly effective provision of, say, a tax directive, and you failed to make um, a provision under Section 11 to codify it before uh, uh, the 31st of uh, December, you can use this power effectively to plug the gap that's become apparent. But it's going to generate huge problems of legal certainty because there will be interregnums between the repeal affected by Section 2 and the revival of the sort of zombie corpse of the thing of EU law that you realised you re required. And I think there's going to be massive arguments about retrospection and about the use of the regulation regulation potential power to be retrospective contained in the wide words of section 13.4 uh, to justify such a fact. So I think that one is a gets a strong marker for future litigation. Then section 13 
uh, contains various procedural provisions. I'm going to skip over that in view of the time and get into section 14, what I call the chopper. This is, this is the power to revoke any secondary retained EU law, not just the 600 odd items listed in Schedule 1, it's the full fat 4,000. Um, there's then a secondary power to replace a secondary retained EU law, either with such provision as the relevant national authority considers to be appropriate and to achieve the same or similar objective. Well, that looks kind of okay. There's some kind of constraint on that. But then there's also power in 14.3 to make such alternative provision as the relevant national authority considers appropriate. So take a policy, fish, fish licensing, etc., replace it with some entirely new policy in the same subject area. And there are very, very limited controls of VARES um, set out in section 14.4, many of which are extremely open te textured. And then the replacement in question, well, it's not retained EU law, assimilated law, it's something new, it's domestic law. And again, we have the same problem of hybrids. What happens if you revoke one provision, but not other provisions? How do you interpret the remaining act? Uh, that is not explained. There is a topical example of this. If you're a real wonk, there's a wonderful draft regulation called the Fluorinated Greenhouse Gases Amendment Regulations 2023 in draft coming into force on the 31st of October 2023 at all good um, bookshops near you. And what this does is simply correct an error in a Section 8 piece of um, uh, regulation. So because Section 8 is gone, they started using Section 14 to correct errors. But that produces some very strange effects if the provision as corrected is no longer uh, uh, retained or assimilated EU law. How do you interpret the hybrid act in question? It's going to be a real poser. Then section 15 and 16, take them very, very quickly. General power in section 15 to update by reference to changes in technology and developments in scientific understanding. Um, perfectly sensible in areas like chemicals, you know, those kind of lists that you update of banned chemicals or things like that. But you can think of areas quite quickly where the open texted language here enables legislation, and that might be problematic. I mean, GDPR, uh, developments in understanding of uh, how technology works or how it's being used, seems to confer a very wide power to amend uh, by statutory instrument. And then Section 16, probably very much in the wonky end, uh, extending the regime of the Legislative and Regulatory Reform Act, which allows you to effectively remove legislative burden by a regulatory order. So here we go. My conclusion, I'm afraid, is this is a complete mess. Uh, Karl Marx would have loved Brexit. Uh, I think Brexit is repeating itself, first as tragedy and secondly as farce. We're going to be spending the next 10 or 15 years arguing about uh, the interaction of these five acts in ways of mind-bending complexity that I think Volvo gives us an insight into. And I suspect the only way through it is going to be to laugh. In part two, we will hear from Naina Patel, Holly Higgins, Ravi Mehta, Emily Neal and Harry Adamson, who will explore the potential impacts in key affected sectors such as employment, environmental law, tax, financial services, telecommunications and energy. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.